We would use what I call like a point of view positioning. Shopify shipped features and developed it at such a pace above and beyond everything else that you're saying like, look, you know that this market is changing. You know that the customer is changing. So pick the partner that is going to be ahead of the curve. This helps you build a lot of trust by saying like, hey, look, you know, we're not the perfect product if you care more about inventory management and analytics and reporting. That's the most important thing for you. It's probably not us. But if you believe that in order to win in the next couple of years, you need to be able to service people online and offline and they need a great online experience, then Shopify is sort of your only choice. And then that would let customers really quickly say like, yes, that's what I believe, so I should evaluate it. And it's a great way to build massive trust up front and also just like get the wrong people out of your funnel fast. Winning a competitive sale isn't always about feature parity. It's often about selling your customers on your vision for the future. Kyle Norton has led sales teams at two unicorn companies, League and Shopify. But the timing of those experiences was vastly different. League was a Series A startup. Shopify was already a massive public company. But there was a common theme to both experiences. Both companies were selling a unique point of view. He joined us today to talk about his sales approach. Welcome to Grow and Tell, the show where revenue leaders tell the growth stories behind successful companies. I'm your host, Alex Krakow. Kyle Norton joined League, a health insurance tech startup, as VP of Sales in 2016. Over three years, he grew revenue to 20 million plus and scaled the sales team to 40 sales reps. In 2019, he joined Shopify as head of revenue for their retail division to help roll out their point of sales products. He eventually became the director of revenue and merchant success for all of Canada. Today, he's the CRO at Owner, an all-in-one marketing platform for restaurants. In our chat today, we talk about building three sales motions from scratch at League, why he made the move to an established company like Shopify, and what it's like working with a first-time founder and owner. I hope you enjoy the show. I'd love to start today's conversation with your time at League, a health insurance startup. You joined League as a VP of sales and the company had just raised a Series A. What made you join League? So it was an unorthodox Series A because... There was no SaaS revenue yet, and the company was going through a, a huge pivot, but they were able to raise 25 million bucks, basically on the back of the founder. It was a, a third-time founder. He had sold his first two companies for hundreds of millions of dollars. So and in Canada, that was very much a rarity. And so that's largely what I was drawn towards. You know, I've always had a passion for health, frustrations about our healthcare landscape, and the opportunity to work with a proven multi-time founder was really attractive because I'd never been in a true startup before. So it was really about the learning opportunity. And what was the company like when you joined? You mentioned there's kind of this transition from, I guess, like, uh, you know, non-subscription revenue. And, you know, how what was the state of the sales yeah. team? Can you kind of paint a picture? Yeah. So there was no real sales team. There was a few people doing some selling and some CS, but for our like Uber for massages type motion and they were trying to sell to big employers to get them to basically book services through our app but we were transitioning to being like a full healthcare provider for employers in insure tech so i was building the sales motion from scratch and originally we were going to have sort of three motions field and inside motion that i was building and then a partner motion 
the other two motions didn't really take. And so basically what I had built as the inside motion became sort of the only thing that we uh, that we did. So it was just me. I hired a small handful of reps, a manager from my network. We were just going at it, it with this brand new messaging, brand new product that sort of no, we didn't have any customers on. And we we're just trying to get like the first real deals, which which is a weird thing because like you you find that product market fit when you're a, you know, five person company on a pre-seed round and we were trying to do it as like a 30 person company. And and so the, the pacing was like pretty different. Yeah. It gets way harder to move when you have a much bigger team, more people you got to explain things to it's way like, it can't be as nimble. Like I'd love to go a level deeper there. Like how did you go about kind of evolving that sales pitch and the process, even though you were a little bit more of a mature company and, you know, was there founder led sales you were sort of building off of, or how did that kind of work? Yeah. So there was a lot of friends of the founder. We called them FOMs, friends of Mike. So the sales team was doing all the pitching. Like we had Mike in some of our really big deals, but for the most part, we were just out there trying to make it happen. He would do sort of board engagement or he would he'd go over the top to the other founder because uh, we were f- focused on selling into mid-market technology companies at first because they would be more forward thinking about healthcare. And so the iteration was like really rapid. Like we were recreating decks basically on a weekly basis ourselves. We had one AE who's awesome in Photoshop and PowerPoint at the time. So we were just like on our own iterating like, oh, we said this, we tried it this way. That got not the right response. So then we would we would like redraft slides every week and then try to go out the next week and say something a little different. And it took us a while to get to the right messaging that unified what the buyer cared about and what we could actually do in our vision. But it was very much like a challenger model where we were trying to get people to do something really different. So finding the way that we could communicate that message while also not scaring folks off was the tricky balance. And over like the three years, I think you were at League, you grew revenue to like 20 million plus and scaled the sales team to, I think, around 40 reps. Like, was there a moment where it started to feel like things were working or were you always just sort of like pushing a ball up the hill and it was hard? Like, how did you sort of feel about it? Yeah, I always joke with the folks that I worked with in that era, like, no, it never felt like it was getting easier. You know, one of the interesting things about raising that amount of money and having those expectations is you just have to grow so fast to keep up with the expectation of that financing that as we started to get a pretty decent fit in particular markets, like, okay, like we've got some good mid-market references. We're starting to build a name for ourselves there. Then it was like, all right, well, the company target goes up 3x next year. So we couldn't possibly do enough of those deals. So now we have to do only enterprise. It was the amount of money raised and the expectations ratcheting up so quickly that really drove us to need to chase up market. Ultimately, that wasn't really the right decision. It was a significant struggle for us to win deals in markets where we had no references. We're pitching a 5,000 person company and our most referenceable customers, 400 people. It was really, really difficult. and, And every deal was brute force. Every deal you were having executives go over the top and pulling levers at their board level. And we were pit, we were multi-threading all over the place. And just like every deal had to be run picture perfect or else you were losing. So it never really felt like it was getting easier. And they've since evolved like away from that employer product and, and sell a more insurance platform product. So 
we never really got product market fit in a true sense. It's so interesting, the like relationship between financing and capital raise and like your go to market strategy and the expectations there. And it sounds like, I mean, you were forced to just do a bunch of like inorganic things that away from product market fit to kind of go chase those big goals. And yeah, I don't know. It's a thing that I think about a lot as we, as we build doc to kind of keep our valuation in check. So we have like reasonable goals. There's a natural growth rate to a company and to an expanding market. And if you try and force it too much, like it doesn't always work. Sometimes it works, but I don't know. It's a tricky balance especially true in true disruptive technologies where you're trying to convince the market to do something different. So we were really trying to get employers to think about how they delivered healthcare and insurance to their employees in a, in a very different way. The market just needs to mature. Like people need a little bit of time. And, and I think one of the product market fits fit challenges was being early. And so this problem of like raising too much money wasn't really a thing in like 2016. Like that didn't happen like it happens in 2019, 2020, where you, as a founder, sometimes you have to say, actually, like we're going to raise a more reasonable round. Like that dynamic, I don't think existed pre 2018, but we found ourselves there. And it was a tremendous lesson for me to learn. I share this lesson a lot with founders who, you know, I advise because it can be painful for sure. And it makes you do short term decisions that are not productive long term. And so after League, you joined Shopify as the head of revenue for retail. Like what made you make this move from a Series B startup to an established public company? Yeah. So I never thought I would go to a big company. Like many of us thought the only real, the only real company building is in startups. Like that's the real stuff. And big companies are slow and it's easy and why would you want to go do that? And actually a friend of mine, Jake Dunlop, I reached out to him just for some advice on it and gave me like a little bit of a come to Jesus talk. He was like, Hey, he's like you and me, like startup guys, you just, we assume that that's the only thing that is out there that going to a big company, you learn a completely different set of skills and pattern recognition and, and mental models. And he's like, you should think about getting that type of exposure and, and, It was a blend of both. Like I got to go to the biggest, most successful tech company in Canada, which was exciting. But also I got to build a new thing, like a new go-to-market motion for the point of sale product. So it was the best of both worlds. And I loved it. Like I loved my three years there. I learned a tremendous amount and very different things than I learned in a startup. So I strongly encourage people to think outside the box if you consider yourself a startup person. And so you mentioned like as you when you joined Shopify was rolling out this point of sales product to retail vendors and you were put in charge of selling that solution. So kind of like a startup within a big company, if you will. Yeah. Can you kind of talk about the point of sales product and like how you approach sales? I mean, were you competing against like Square and things in people's yeah. actual offices? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Square, Lightspeed, Vend, the product that you're checking out with when you're at a clothing store, for example. And so the product was fairly well established down market. You know, there was like $70 million in revenue in this business. So it wasn't nothing, but they were really, we were really just piloting a farther up market human led go to market motion on top of the self serve motion that already existed. And so we grew the team from like five people to 70 and change in 18 months, really moved the needle on the growth rate for that business. And had a blast. Like it was a really exciting opportunity. And and I largely joined that team because the guy who ran it, Ian Black, I thought I could learn a lot from. He's a former senior Uber guy, 
super smart dude and, and was clearly going to do something exciting with that business. The product was great and uh, it was the opportunity to like go build. So yeah, no regrets about it. I, I loved my time there. What did sales actually look like? Are you selling into just like, you know, existing Shopify customers who already have a Shopify website? Do you like mm-hmm. knock on doors, do cold calling? Like how did you sort of approach it? Yeah, it was a lot of expanding into the current Shopify base. So we had a bunch of data to to give us a likelihood that e-commerce customer had a brick and mortar location We're using a bunch of the Google API data and, and other stuff to take a best guess. And that was the first nine months, then COVID hit. And all of a sudden, every business in the country needed to have an online motion, even if they weren't already. And so we ended up the business ended up shifting from probably 80% expanding current customers with point of sale to almost 5050 current customers expanding to new customers wanting to get set up online and then us saying, hey, if you're a brick and mortar, your brick and mortar is going to be closed, move the whole business over now. So you have one system of record, one platform. And then when you're ready to open up again, you're better placed to you know, deliver an omni-channel experience to your customers and, and grow faster. So the motion changed a lot in, in COVID. We had to like rebuild all the messaging and retrain folks. That was a pretty wild time. Yeah, and I want to get into COVID a little bit more in a second here, but why were customers buying this? I assume it's the tie-in to the website and the Shopify platform. And you is it is this omni-channel? Was that the pitch? Like, how were you able to yeah. go against a Square, for example, or whoever the com- competition was? Yeah, you're right on it. So the point of sale, like feature to feature, was either behind or just like at parity. But the fact that the point of sale was attached to this ecosystem, you know, the best e-commerce product, all this other tooling, and you could unify both the operations of the business. So it's easier to operate if you're running Shopify across across the business versus having something integrated or unintegrated. That was a piece of it. And also it unlocked so many multi-channel marketing opportunities. So being able to have one customer record so that you can understand buying patterns, you could market to people who buy online to drive them in store. You can remarket to people who come in store because now you're capturing their data at checkout and then get them to buy online. And so a lot of the data showed that if you can have somebody purchase online and offline, their their stickiness was tremendously elevated. And so that was that was the pitch. Make more money, simplify your business, and also be like future-proofed. Shopify shipped features and developed it at such a pace above and beyond everything else that you're saying, like, look, you know that this market is changing. You know that the customer is changing. So pick the partner that is going to be ahead of the curve. That was another big part of the positioning. And and largely to tie League and Shopify together, we would use what I call like a point of view positioning. This helps you like really quickly let a customer opt in or opt out and qualify them up front and then build a lot of trust by saying like, hey, look, like, you know, we're not the perfect product if you care more about inventory management and analytics and reporting like our reporting's not as good as lightspeed and so if that's the most important thing for you it's it's like probably not us but if you believe that in order to win in the next couple of years you need to be able to service people online and offline and they need a great online experience then shopify sort of your only choice and then that would let customers really quickly say like yes that's what i believe so i should evaluate it 
we did the same thing at league. If you believe X and Y about healthcare and what's wrong with it, then we should talk. And it's a great way to like build massive trust up front and also just like get the wrong people out of your funnel fast. I love that point of view positioning because you're like trying to lead them into the future. And it's like anybody who's innovative and thinking about the future, like I feel like they have to say yes to that point of view, right? As a retailer, you'd be surprised, thinking, but I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. You'd <laughs> sure. be surprised. We yeah. would joke at league, you know, if we could run a LinkedIn search algorithm to just find all the people that were wearing tech fleece hoodies and disqualify anybody who's wearing like a blouse or a tie in their LinkedIn profile. Like that's how we should prospect. And it was like a little bit of a joke, but there was a lot of truth to it because we would pitch somebody who has a very old school view of HR. It's risk management, it's legal, parenting your employees versus a more forward thinking HR leader who understands you know, hey, healthcare is important for people. And if we can deliver this type of experience, they can be better healthcare consumers. It'll drive down costs. And some people just couldn't compute what we wanted to do. And that was okay. And the key was how to qualify them out as fast as possible. And point of view positioning was a great tool to do that. Yeah, as I was reaching, researching for this interview, I was even surprised that like Shopify even has a, a sales team. You know, Shopify yeah. has, it's like, it's such an amazing self-serve product-led growth business. Like, can you like explain a little bit of like how is is sales organized at Shopify? Because I know after you did the point of solution stuff, you ended up like leading go to market for Canada. Yeah. Like, what does sales look like at Shopify more broadly? You're opening up Pandora's box with that question because it's changed so many times. So there was a plus sales team selling the upmarket product. So to customers of like a million in GMV and above, there was a more sophisticated product. And so they had a sales team. That organization was probably four to 600 people before I started, but we didn't cross over at any point on the org chart. We were totally separate product lines. I was building something separate. And then after the end of 2020, we brought all of those teams together, regionalized. Every region sold all products. And it was basically a train wreck. Uh, not the right org design, bunch of weird decisions made. And so we sort of floundered for 12 to 18 months and sort of tried to unwind that reorg incrementally because we over-regionalized. We had duplicates of roles everywhere, like really poor collaboration. And so that was a big challenge. And so we unwound a lot of that. A new CRO just joined this guy, uh, Bobby Morrison, I think his name is, from Intuit. And he's like whipped the place into shape. So now there's a lot more like central specialization, a services model. They've like brought back the retail team. Like my team got disbanded, which crushed me at the time. It was really sad to see. And now it's like back as a thing. So uh, what's old is new again. So it's, it's ebbed and flowed a lot, but it, it seems like in the last couple quarters since Bobby's got his people in there and he's making decisions, it seems like it's on an exciting pace. Which is exciting for me because I'm a big Shopify fan. I'm, I'm super, super excited to hear that it's like really clipping now. And it's an amazing company. And Toby is just such an incredible aspirational leader who I look up to so much. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting to hear or redesign stuff. Yeah, I, I, I can totally see how there's a lot of du duplicative roles and how the GM model probably like sounds good in theory. But in practice, it's like, okay, now I'm hiring two of everything and then no one's actually a special, special yeah. specialized in anything. Yeah, it's an interesting yeah. balance. I actually never liked it on paper. I wrote like an eight page document 
arguing against it that didn't go anywhere but on paper i got what they were thinking but then in reality it didn't totally make sense and then the guy who was behind it left the business like four months after it happened so we were all left doing cleanup duty so lesson learned again like frustrating at the time but lots of interesting lessons in terms of great organizational design and and how you can build high functioning businesses so yeah but it was it was wild and I'm curious how the Shopify sales team sort of play off of that strong product-led motion. You know, are there like triggers that you have where it's like, okay, time for the sales team to reach out to this customer? Yeah. Or are you like reaching out to net new people who have never even, you know, built in Shopify before? Like what's the balance there? Yeah. So for a company of that size, we were actually a lot less sophisticated than you would think in terms of the use of data for go-to-market. On the product side very high sophistication. That growth organization is probably one of the best in the world. Like Luke Levesque, who runs it and really piloted it, was like, he's a badass. But we never really got that same level of sophistication to go to market. And so you did a lot through the tools that you did have access to, but a lot of that happened at the sort of team level. The advantage was you had a lot of customers that were growing quickly on Shopify's core products. And we had great data on those customers to try to upgrade them. And then on the sales side, you know, everybody knew best targets in their market. You know, they're on our competitors, they're the brands that people know about. And so the prospect data was a little messy. They've just like relaunched their whole Salesforce instance. I think that's getting better, but uh, that wasn't our forte. RevOps wasn't our forte until I think recently. Yeah. I think companies with amazing product market fit, like a lot of the times the internal operations, you can you can get get away with it for a lot longer than you think. I know like Stripe had a similar situation yeah. talking to people there. But yeah, no, I mean, when you have great product market fit, it covers up a lot of stuff. Yeah. And you just have so much inbound volume. Like there's so much inbound volume and the outbound conversion rates are so strong because it's Shopify. People are like, yeah, I'll take I'll take a meeting. Yeah. What's yeah. tell me what's going on. What are you guys building? Like there was a genuine curiosity from customers to hear our point of view and and what's going on and especially product wise so yeah that definitely leads to not needing to be like crazy buttoned up but that was a tremendous opportunity i think now that the company is is building a lot of go to market strength and a lot of go to market sophistication that business will accelerate in a significant way because there's so much opportunity so much data so much so the brand power is so great and that product is just it's just unequivocally better than any basically anything else out there for most like pure D2C e-com use cases. So yeah, I'm I'm bullish. And you mentioned like Shopify was uniquely impacted by COVID. First, there was like all the uncertainty around small businesses and shipping, but then Shopify experienced like insane growth during the pandemic years. Like what was that experience like for you sort of on the ground there? And how did that change sort of how you approached coaching reps? Yeah, it was just a blur. Like, especially because I was in this point of sale group nine months into my role when it all happened. And, you know, the entire team was like under four months of tenure. And so we were on the fly changing stuff like almost every day. We thought our business was going to just be eviscerated. But so we we said, everybody, we're going to guarantee your full comp. We're going to pause the variable compensation plan. We're just going to pay you your full OTE, like you're well taken care of. That, that was a very Shopify approach to things like taking care of people and doing the right thing. But then 
a couple days later, a couple weeks later, all of a sudden we got this the most insane inbound volume as all of these people were trying to figure out how are they going to survive as a brick and mortar business. And we were the default choice. So we had to quickly pivot into a mode of how do we just deal with this volume of inbound? How do we now pitch this new customer type that wants to move their whole business over to us? We were like changing messaging and checking in on people a lot because like people were just so busy, like, you know, the Zooms of the world just fielding mass, like mass volume. And I think the thing that we did well there as a leadership team is try to make decisions from the viewpoint of the customer. It's like, what does the customer really need from us right now? And how do we deliver that at scale, even if resources are, are relatively limited? And that was like a very Shopify set of values. It's like deliver massive customer value is priority number one, make money by doing that. And then never forget that, like, don't confuse one and two. And so the customer centricity and how you're enabled at Shopify to actually make customer centric decisions was, I think, the best thing that that we could have done at that point. And so we just, you know, every decision we made, it's like, okay, well, how does this affect customers? Does this let us serve more people? Does this let us get people, help people faster? And so every week we were like making changes and updates and changing qualification criteria to help more people. So it was a good lesson in, in customer centricity because, you know, massive numbers of those businesses are still with Shopify today and thriving. Switching gears a little bit. So now you're working at a startup called Owner as the SVP of sales and partnerships. Like what made you leave Shopify? And maybe a better question is what about Owner made you want to go do another early stage startup? Yeah. So I said I would never go back to early stage after League. I was like, that's too crazy. I just had my second kid and yeah, was was really happy at shop, had no intention of leaving. But one of the venture capital funds I'm involved in, GTM fund, invested in owner. And so through that process, I met the founder, Adam. We start, we ended up being on calls like every week. And there was just like a magic there. And uh, so I was like doing some advisory stuff. And, and at some point, Adam was like, hey, like, you know, I know you're not really looking around, but he's like, would you consider you know, like exploring, joining us full time. I'm like, ah, oh, I don't know. The time is not right. Like, you know, maybe in the September timeframe. And as I started to learn more about the business and spent more time with Adam, I just came to the realization. I was like, okay, so my philosophy on investing is like, it's all about the founder. Yeah. You want a big market, but like Uber was black cars for rich people. And now it's just like logistics and, you know, PayPal was, payments for eBay. And now it's, you know, this massive fintech platform. Like, okay. So like market can change. If we think market product team are the three variables, market can change. Product can definitely change. Good products can catch up and get better. Great products can lose a step, but like really like what's the thing that determines success. It's just like, is that founder truly elite? And as I've learned more and about early stage, you know, it's not just about like a, being a great founder, I think great maybe gets you to like a series B or something, but, but to really go do something special, you need to be like truly different, like truly world-class. And, and that's what I saw in Adam. And it was sort of FOMO more than anything. I was like, I can fast forward this movie three or five years. And I just like can see myself being on LinkedIn, seeing some like insane announcement from this company and being like, wow, I, I could have been there and I missed out, even though I knew that this guy had some magic and, Adam and Dean, the two co-founders, I was just like insanely impressed with. And so I just sort of felt like I 
had to do it. Like I couldn't miss this opportunity because they come around so infrequently. I've never met a guy like him ever in all of my investing or advisory or just like being involved with startups. I've never really been around two co-founders that have like the discipline and drive learning motor. The two of them are just like insane learning machines. So I jumped in and even though the timing couldn't have been worse, like my son was three months old. Personally, it was a very challenging six months with two young kids, but you know, like very glad I made that, that decision because you know it's been a it's been an awesome ride and i'm very optimistic about where we're going yeah adam guild is super impressive i mean i had like a you know 30 minute hour call with him talking about marketing and everything you just said resonated with me it was like oh wow this guy is like an amazing learning machine and just very unique but he's yeah. also very young which is interesting like what is it you know it's maybe his first real company he's ever worked at what has it been like working with adam to kind of build out sales and owner and like what has that transition been like from founder-led sales to sales-led sales so I'll, I'll separate those two questions the learning machine thing was what caught my attention and and the i remember it so clearly like we were talking on a call about messaging and i was like oh you know i, I really like this book made to stick it's got some good frameworks to just like simplify things for customers to better understand. And then like 18 hours later, he texts me. He's like, Hey, I read that book. So one, it was, you know, impressive that he just read this book I mentioned offhand in 18 hours. And then two, he just like started asking me these questions that were not like clarifying questions. They were questions like I would expect to get from like a seasoned go-to-market operator that's been like doing this forever. It's like, Jesus Christ, like he, like he just read this book and he's like clearly synthesized this information so massively. And so I think like that that is his superpower. And so your other question was about as a first-time founder, that ability to learn incredibly rapidly uh, means that we don't need to learn as many of those painful first-time founder lessons as you otherwise would because that super learning combined with an intellectual humility avoids a lot of those mistakes so he has a good network he reads voraciously and if it's go-to-market stuff you know when i share my opinion he's like really open and interested in it and is genuinely like inquisitive and curious he's like oh and how do you think about that and what about this and you know even if we have a disagreement and we're talking it through if my logic is sound, he's like, okay, great. That sounds like a, the right decision. Like, let's do that, do it that way. And the humility and lack of ego to not need to be right every single time or not, not need to do it my way is way more rare than it should be. And that allows him to operate way beyond any first time founder that I've, that I've been around personally. Can you explain a little bit about like what is owner and maybe how has the sales pitch evolved if it has from kind of when you started to what it is today? Yeah. So the core problem we solve, I'll answer this from the restaurant's perspective first. The core problem we solve is you know, over the last five to seven years, the guest has changed a lot. So now digital ordering is not just a trend, but it's like very much an expectation. Uber Eats was, you know, obviously the third party marketplaces in general were, were gaining a lot of prominence. And then COVID sent it from like clear trend to basically an overnight absolute. Like my parents can use Uber Eats. And if my parents are using Uber Eats, it's a wrap. Like they're not exactly the world's best technologists. That means for restaurant owners, they need to be able to deliver not only good food and service, but a great digital experience and they need to be able to be found online and have a good website. And like, that's definitely not in 
the core competencies of 98% of restaurant owners. They got into that business because they love food. They didn't get into the restaurant business to be digital marketers. And so they oftentimes are trying to keep up with the customer by cobbling together like, okay, a Wix website and use Chow now for ordering. And then they'll use like a text provider and MailChimp for emails. And they like put it all together. They don't do an awesome job. And then the, the, basically get nowhere. Their customers are still buying from Uber Eats where they're paying a 30% commission. And it just leaves them insanely frustrated and actually losing money. And so owner like out of the box solves that whole problem. And so we provide them a website, an online ordering experience so people can actually order directly from them. We API back into delivery networks so they can still get the delivery drivers even if they don't wanna deliver in house. Then email and text message marketing tools, loyalty program, custom branded app for every customer. It's all wired up with AI. So AI will assist them if they want to write a custom email or, or create campaigns. We've got a bunch of cool AI stuff that we're releasing over the next little while. The outcome is they make way more money. So oftentimes we're like doubling our, our customers direct delivery business in like 90 days, uh, which is super cool. They do way less of the stuff they don't like want to do. They now let us do all of the heavy lifting on digital marketing. Um, and their business is way more profitable. It's cool to support small business in this way. And like if you go read our G2 page, for example, like everybody says the same story. It's like, man, I was stressed. I hated trying to do this on my own. And now like I'm making all this money. And, and uh, that's super fulfilling. Restaurants are like a super tough market. I mean, I started my career selling sales at, at Yelp and cold called restaurants oh, myself. Yeah, you know. And like, you know, and, and I feel like they're, they've been burned by so many vendors in the past. They've been thrown. I mean, you mentioned a few Wix, Chow Now, then you got DoorDash, Uber Eats. Like, how are you yeah. able to kind of stand out and build trust, uh, you know, as you work with these restaurant owners? Because as you said, like, they're not amazing technologists. Who, yeah. I feel like they're skeptical of as you as you reach out and be like, hey, we're going to solve all your problems. Eh? And yeah, you're going to yeah. save you money. Yeah. They've definitely heard all that before and they don't believe a word you're saying. Yeah, 100%. And they have every right to be skeptical because they've gotten sold a bad bill of goods a lot. So there's two things. One is the sales experience and two is sort of how we contract and interact with the customer. I'll start with the contracting because it's a little straightforward. We don't do long-term contracts. So every customer signs up with us month to month. If they don't like it, they leave. We'll give them all of their customer data. They can one-click export. We'll help them revert back to their old website. So we're really lowering the stakes of making a mistake uh, for the customer and showing them. It's like, hey, we're going to put our money where our mouth is. If we don't give you a great result, we're going to make it super easy to walk away. And, and so you have to have some trust that we can deliver or else we'd get crushed as a business if we made it easy to, to, to walk away. And even in the early days, we had a money back guarantee on top of that. We, we pulled that away because we don't need it. and It reduced customer commitment, but we act with a lot of transparency and like customer centricity. We make it easy to do business with and easy to walk away. But then on the positioning side, Going back to that point of view positioning, like I, I have a radically transparent sales style. And so I want my reps to tell customers what's good and what's not good about owner. And so the trade-off that I arc, that we architect for a prospect is like, hey, look, like no, no um, product is perfect. That's not, that doesn't exist. Every product has uh, advantages and disadvantages. The disadvantage, the trade-off of using owner is you're going to get a lot less 
choice and customization. Your website is going to be like our core template. We're going to build the email journeys for you. You don't really get to choose the order and how those things look like we're going to change the style and the copy, but like you're going to have to fit into a box with owner because we know that these are highly optimized templates and patterns that are going to work and deliver results, deliver revenue for you. But in exchange for giving up flexibility and choice, you're going to make way more money. You're going to do way less work and you're, you're just like life's going to be better. And so if you care more about design aesthetic and you've got like a brand guide that you had some marketing partner do and that's what you care about the most, don't choose us. Choose Bento Box. You can like it'll cost you way more, but like you can make it look super pretty and all this stuff. If you just want results, if you just want to make money, we're the choice. And that level of transparency Again, just let the right people opt in. Be like, that's exactly what I want. I don't want to do any of this crap. Okay, cool. So your trust goes way up and and your buyer can opt in faster and vice versa. The people it's like, oh, wait, so I can't do my custom fonts. No, you absolutely can't do your custom fonts. Okay, cool. Then it's not a fit. Great. Cool. No, no big deal. And it's such a compelling pitch to restaurant owners because probably most of them don't have custom fonts or don't care about design. They just want to focus on making good food and making their customers happy. And this is all sort of a necessary evil. I also love how you like integrate so smoothly with DoorDash and Uber Eats, but also giving them the ability to kind of have like their own ordering system and can be profitable in there. Because I've always thought like, you know, how much those systems must eat into restaurants margins. Yeah, they basically make no money on those orders. Like restaurants, takeout and delivery restaurants in general are making less money today than they were five years ago because they're giving a good chunk of that margin away to the apps. I'm curious how you think about like both the, I guess the top of funnel at owner, like are you doing cold calling? Are you going door to door, reaching out to folks? And then maybe a second part of that question is like, does geography come into play? Like, do you think about kind of launching cities or different networks of restaurants mm-hmm. or is it all just digital so it doesn't matter? We're all digital. Lots of our competitors have feet on the street and they knock on doors and there's an advantage to that. We have invested tremendously in our data infrastructure So our ability to understand the highest fit, highest revenue potential restaurants across the nation is way more valuable than the potential conversion rate uh, improvements you'd get by actually being face to face. And so we're we're a fully digital uh, sales org. Yeah, sometimes we'll have reps go in person if somebody really wants to meet us. That's fine. But why we're able to win and you know, on a per rep basis, my reps close probably 3x the revenue on a per rep basis than a bunch of our competitors, because we've like relentlessly reduced low value work, bad data, and really just like rooted out inefficiency in our system that can be better done remotely. You know, you're not spending 20 minutes in a car driving somewhere and then they don't show up like that's obviously not a great experience. We've really leaned into the fully digital model and a fully optimized, automated go-to-market approach. Because again, like there's trade-offs. You get better conversion rates in in person, but then you'd get you don't have the advantages of of all of this digital infrastructure. And we've really made that work for us. I'm curious how you've thought about kind of building out the sales team over time at owner and like what is the sales culture look like at owner? And maybe a part of that would love to know are you in person? Are you remote? Like how do you sort of think about um yeah. you know, building the team? Yeah, we're fully remote. And as many other companies are pulling back into the office, 
you know, return to office three days a week, we're very committed to a remote environment. It gives us a lot of scale. I can hire talent anywhere. It gives our employees a lot more flexibility to integrate their their personal lives and their work lives in a way that's meaningful for them that I think is very attractive. And I think as more and more companies pull people back into the office, we become an even more attractive destination because we're still remote. And so you have to be mindful that you're hiring people with a very high sense of drive, an internal sense of drive. We just want to hire people with great discipline, great drive and passion so that they don't need an office to, you know, stay focused and work hard. That I think is really important and, and will be a differentiator for us into the future. And if that's you, hit me up uh, if you're listening. And in terms of culture, so culture, I have a lot of opinions on culture, so we can, I'll try to stay succinct here. But I think culture is actually less important than values and employee experience. Like culture is a thing that gets thrown around. And it's like, is it fun? It's, it's like a, it's like a shorthand for like, is it fun to be at that company? And that's why people are like, oh, culture's better in person. Yeah, because it is more fun probably to be in person. You get to pal around and there's like ping pong tables and you can catch up over lunch. Like that's, that is more fun. But I think what it's important for me is what actually produces business results. Well, that is high engagement, productivity, high employee retention. And what you need for those things is not actually a fun environment. Yeah, you sacrifice personal relationships being remote. It's harder to build like friendships if you're just on a screen. I fully admit that. You'll never really be able to replace that remote versus in person. But if you go back to the research I really like, which is this Gallup research called the Q12, the things that are most highly tied to employee engagement and engagement leading to productivity and, and high retention rates are all things we can readily deliver in a remote environment. Do people trust their manager and the leadership in the business? Do they feel attached to the vision and do they care about, do they care about that mission? Are they equipped with the tools they need to succeed? Are they getting continuous growth and development? Do they feel like they have career opportunities? There's sort of a list of 12 things. Only one of them, uh, one of the criteria, I have a best friend at work. Everything else you can deliver just as well remotely as you can in person, other than best friend at work. I will readily give that one to the in-person crowd. And so we just go hard at all of those things. We try to deliver it at, in a world-class manner. So development road plan, roadmaps for every reps, tons of training and coaching, lots of internal promotions. Like we're really committed to promoting from within. So people have that, have that career progression opportunity for them. I'm hyper transparent, like the same monthly update that I write to my executive team as to like my assessment of the business. I publish that entire thing to my sales team, to the whole company. Then I do an AMA where people can ask me any single question they want. I don't sugarcoat anything. It's like those are the types of things that build engagement remote or in person that I think people don't do enough of. And is that culture? Not really. I think it's more employee experience and values. And so... Like we did an employee net promoter score recently and it was like 87 on my team. People will tell you that it's impossible. That's impossible in a remote, but it's not, you know, you just have to do the work. You have to, it's hard work, like hard work to deliver that stuff. You have to be disciplined and write tons of documentation, but it works for us. And, and I think it'll continue to be a competitive advantage. 
I'd love to end today's conversation talking a little bit about your own personal journey. You know, being a sales leader at a startup is, is tough. You just have that constant weight of a number on your head. Like, how do you think about like one prioritizing your own mental health as the company grows, but also like you keep getting better and you keep scaling yourself and keeping up with that company growth curve. It's a really interesting balance that I deal with a lot myself. I'm curious how you deal with it. Yeah, it's a great question. It's something we talk about a lot. So on the mental health side of things, it's just about being disciplined and doing the stuff that we all know we should do. Are you working out every day? Are you eating pretty healthy? Is your sleep hygiene good? Are you reading and like engaging your mind and other things outside of work? Are you taking the time to like make sure you're, are you taking the time to like check in with yourself, ask yourself what you need? It's like, Hey, like I, you know, I'm not going to lift weights today. Cause like I'm really wrecked from the week. It's like, okay, I'm going to do something else. So I think it's just that commitment and, and being in an environment where that's, commonplace, I think is really important. Everybody through the leadership team has that same priority. We talk about it a lot. The health and fitness channel is like one of the most popular ones at the company. We talk about it at all hands constantly. I talk about it constantly with my team. So I think it's just about doing the things that we know we should do. Like we, you know, like if you drink, you're going to feel like shit, but how many people like have two drinks every single night? Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, and then you stay up too late and you got your phone in your face until midnight, you know, you're tired the next day. Like, you know, it's, it's just discipline to do what we know we should do. That for me is, is the way that I am able to keep this pace because it is definitely like a very fast pace for sure. Startups in general. And, and then owner is sort of even at another gear, I would say like speed is one of our core values. And in terms of trade-offs, like when I interview people, I'm like, Hey, look, like there's all these great things about owner. They're going to seem exciting, but like, this is a performance culture and it's like not a real work-life balance culture. You got to be ready to commit to it. You want to, you want, you got to be ready to put career first. And if that's not you cool, no big deal, but the owner's just not your destination. You won't like it. And so again, tr transparency. And then your second question was on, uh, how do I personally? Yeah. How like, do you keep stay? up with the company growth curve? Yeah. It's a commitment to learning. So I read every day. Podcasts are a big part of it. Like when you reached out, I started getting into your pod. I'm like, oh, there's great stuff here. Like learning about company building and just hearing those stories. So whether it's yours or 20VC or I've I've spent a lot of time listening to Lenny's podcast, which is a product management pod. But for me as a sales leader, trying to be more well-rounded as an executive has been like probably my best investment over the last two years. In terms of being a more well-rounded leader, I like read a lot about product management because it's so applicable to building sales teams, just the systems thinking and the the problem solving of it and, and being a great partner to product as well. So those are the things I do sort of on the daily. And yeah, it's like Toby says this a lot at Shopify. He's like, if the company grows 100% year over year, like just to qualify for the job you currently have, you need to be 100% better next year. It's like, if you want to get promoted, you probably have to be 200% better. And that really sets the stakes for how much you're investing yourself. And, you know, network helps a lot. Pavilion has been big for me in, in that way, having like-minded people that I can talk to and go meet for dinner. So it's, uh, yeah, again, it's just like discipline to be committed to it. I think most people know what they should do, but finding the discipline to do it is, is the hard thing. So go read Atomic Habits by James Clear. That'll that'll give you most of the answer key that I've lived by. Well, thank you so much for the conversation today, Kyle. If people want to go work at Owner, or if people have questions for you, where's the best place uh, for them to find you? LinkedIn. Yeah, hit me up on LinkedIn. Just 
Kyle Norton, I'll come right up uh, and uh, shoot me a DM. Tell me you heard me here and uh, I'm open to talk. Awesome. Thank you. That's a wrap on another episode of Grow and Tell. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform or find every episode at growandtellshow.com. I'm your host, Alex Krakow. Thank you for listening.